Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode with Paige. With this episode today, we're going to be talking about some of our own personal experiences with amenorrhea, but we're also going to go through some of the key things that you need to understand if you're suffering with hypothalamic amenorrhea yourself in terms of understanding the pathophysiology, debunking a lot of the kind of myths that are out there as to what you need to do for recovery. And we're going to give you a lot of our own specific guidelines as to what we do with our clients as well, because we know that there's many people on this journey. So Paige, can you give us a little bit of an overview as to your own individual HA journey? Absolutely. I'll try and keep it as short and sweet as possible. Basically, my journey with amenorrhea began essentially when I was undergoing, you know, my body transformation or tr- basically chronically dieting. Mm-hmm. I then was going through physique competitions at the time and I decided that I wanted to come off the pill. At that time, I was at like really low body weight for what's healthy for me. And then as part of that, continued to diet rather than trying to recover weight. And then I unfortunately lost my periods post-pill, so post-coming off the pill. I never got it back for about two and a half two and a half to three years. And that was a process of essentially slowly reducing down my exercise. It was slowly increasing the amount of food that I was consuming and putting on quite a lot of body weight in order for myself to to recover and to get my period back. But it was a very long, hard, mentally difficult journey. And so whenever anybody talks about it, I can absolutely understand how difficult it is because it's so much of a mental issue or a mental battle than it is also, you know, the, the fight that your body is having sort of against you. That's it, because you've kind of got that one voice in your head that's still kind of trying to feed into the idea that I need to look a particular way. And then you've right. got the other kind of voice in your head that's like, hey, no, we actually need to do what makes us healthy and happy and makes our systems all work synergistically together, like reproductive cycle and everything like that. So it can be it can be quite a tricky journey. I think too also because, you know, I was in an industry or I was working in an industry where I felt like my body was essentially going to get me more clients or, you Mm. know, at the time my body was like so important to me and how it looked was so important to me. But then also considering that my reproductive health is also really, really important and making sure that I I look at my period as my fifth vital sign and if it's Mm -hmm. not working properly, then there's something wrong. And so making sure that I was focusing on that as well, but it was just really difficult to like reduce down the desire that I had around how my body should look. Yeah. And it's so interesting that you even bring that up because I know I had a new client consult about a week or two ago with a client that is kind of going through or has gone through the HA journey and we're regulated like regulating her cycles back again. And one of the key things she actually spoke about in terms of her body image was she goes, I go to the gym and I'm training, but I look like someone that doesn't train. And it's like, well, actually, there's no specific physique for a person that looks like they train because it could be people that look completely different and be a lot fitter than I am and a lot stronger than I am. And it actually doesn't correlate with, you know, whether you train or you don't train. And I think that that's the sad, that's probably like such a sad, not sad, but, you know, it's a disappointing factor, especially around like women in the fitness industry, that the women in the fitness industry that look like they represent fitness and they represent what is healthy and fit probably have dysregulation with their menstrual cycle okay. or they're probably on some type of contraception that their fertility isn't, you know, the number one priority for them at the time. So whatever is representative of fitness isn't actually 
a completely healthy woman. Obviously, in some instances, that is incorrect. But, you know, holistically, I am sure that that is the case. Yeah, exactly. And then with my own personal journey with amenorrhea, it's a little bit different to pages. So with mine, it was actually just a period of six months that my period went missing. And I was probably about 21. I wasn't doing any intense exercise at all, but I was at uni and I lived about an hour and a half to two hours away from uni. I, I'm i a chronically bad sleeper, so I would be waking up in the morning to go to uni quite early. Um, I had a lot of stress from uni and I was doing full-time uni and working about probably four or five days of the week as well. Plus then on top of that, I actually wasn't eating enough food and I lost my period yeah, for about six months. During that period of time, I remember thinking that I've always had that idea that I was overweight, but I'm like, I need to lose weight. I need to lose weight. But I didn't participate in the excessive exercise. I wouldn't have known anything about needing to reach 10,000 steps for maintenance of you know, mm-hmm. your step count. I would have known nothing about steps or anything back then. I would have just done a regular kind of circuit training every couple, like, you know, a couple of times a week, but nothing excessive. And my body weight It got down to about 57 kilos. Now, the reason I'm saying that is because it's a really important point I want to make in this podcast is because it actually doesn't necessarily have to do with the kilos or the scale when it comes to hypothalamic amenorrhea as well, because some people can listen and be like, well, 57, that's really not that. It's not excessively light. And I'm about 168 centimeters. So I'm not extremely tall, but I'm not sure. And I have plenty of clients that are probably about that kind of weight and height and their cycle is like bang on 28 days. But for me, historically, prior to that point, I was overweight for most of my childhood, most of my adolescence up until 16, 17, then I lost weight. And the thing is, is that for me, that body weight was obviously very different compared to what my body was used to. So a couple, a reduced body weight plus all the excessive stress from uni, it was enough to tell my brain that it's not a safe environment to have a child. Now, of course, the thing is, is when we're talking about this, not everyone wants to have it like, you know, we need to have a period to have a child. Like, obviously, I was 20, 21. I was not thinking about having a kid. But that's essentially the purpose of the menstrual cycle. And the purpose of ovulation is because it's that supertile window. So basically, there was enough triggers there for my body to be like, this is not a safe environment, regardless of the amount of body fat that she's got. She's actually just really stressed and this isn't safe. Yeah. It actually took seeing, I saw a naturopath, went on a whole bunch of different herbs and actually within about six weeks, my period came back, which is quite a quick turnaround. That is quick. For some people, that's a much, much longer journey. And whether that is because I had the factor of, you know, I wasn't extremely underweight or anything like that, it was a major component. There was a stress. And because I was working on that with the naturopath and I started to eat a little bit more as well, then that that was enough for my body to be like, okay, she's kind of getting enough to make us feel like we can regulate this ovulation again. Yeah, I remember uh, I remember vividly like when I was working with you to recover my period, mm. I, I think that I was working with you for about a year. Yeah. And prior to that, I was working with Chinese medicine support and doing acupuncture. Mm. I was doing absolutely everything in my power. I was trying to increase food. And so I guess like the important factor here for people to consider is that it's completely interdependent 
per person and whether or not you are at a regular weight or whether you are underweight or whatever it might be some people may get it back a lot quicker when they put their mind, like, you know, when they invest in regulating it. Mm-hmm. And some people, it may take a long period of time and it may take reducing all stressing factors. You know, for me, it was like I needed to reduce the stress in my work and I needed to reduce the stress in my day to day life mm-hmm. and I needed to reduce <laughs> the stress that I was putting in my body of training and everything needed to be reduced and is so much easier said than done and it takes such a long time but at the same time you also have to try not to obsess over it like I did (laughs) I know that I did the obsession also then creates additional stress as well so it's hard to like find that balance too exactly I definitely remember conversations with you about that just being like Kate you're trying to control every single variable under the sun to get your period (laughs) back just relax a little bit and obviously it's easy for me to tell you to do that but that is something that's actually even in the research is that they say an important component for individuals that have hypothalamic amenorrhea is that they need to address the diet which we just kind of spoke about but we're going to go into a lot more detail but also they need to address their attitudes around perfectionism and a high need for social approval they're drive for ambition and the expectation for self and others, which is so interesting because as I say all of that, I'm just like, yep, makes sense. Tick, tick. (laughs) She has all these issues. (laughs) (laughs) No, but also what a pattern of what I see in so many of my clients that have hypothalamic anorexia is this perfectionism, like this constant drive, which, you know, I think sometimes those qualities, they're strengths in certain ways, but they can be really, they can turn into a negative or a weakness when it's taken to a certain extreme and that it's impacting your ability to actually tune in to your body to actually see what it needs and what it's asking for. Absolutely. Absolutely. So before we get into some of the nitty-gritties, because I want to go through a lot about like the diet, body fat percentage and all that, like, you know, debunking all that kind of stuff. But let's go through a bit of the diagnostic criteria for HA and actually what it is. So for those that don't know, HA stands for hypothalamic amenorrhea. Hypothalamic kind of refers to the part of the brain being the hypothalamus. So basically the hypothalamus, it's like the controller of everything else in the body. It basically sends the signals to the pituitary, which is another part of the brain, which then sends the signals to other organs like your thyroid, like your ovaries, like the adrenals, to either tell you know the ovaries to make your hormones to support reproduction, to tell your adrenals to make your cortisol to support your stress response, and to tell your thyroid to produce the hormones that it needs to get you know metabolic function going. So hypothalamic amenorrhea then refers to the hypothalamus basically shitting itself and deciding to just cock it and <laughs> not going to work for a little while. And unfortunately, that then means that you don't just see a dysfunction in the ovaries, you also see dysfunction in the extension of everything else that comes from the hypothalamus being your adrenal response. So you get a lot of the fatigue and tiredness, you can get a lot of changes in your stress resilience as well. And then you get a decreased function in your thyroid because the thyroid gets the signals from the hypothalamus as well. Now, essentially with a diagnostic criteria, it's important to be able to get bloods done because you want to be able to understand, is it actually a hypothalamic amenorrhea or is it polycystic ovarian syndrome? 
Essentially, with the menstrual cycles, we can then see that the cycles can proceed more than 45 days, like consistently, that the periods can be a little bit more than 45 days in between, or that there's been no period at all for about three months or more. So that's where you can kind of see, like, for example, in my case and Fager's case, we both kind of fit that picture of more than three months that we didn't have our period. But you could then see that the factors in our timeline were a little bit different, which means our treatment plans were probably going to be a little bit different. So there was no blanket treatment where I didn't lose excessive amounts of weight really quickly. That was kind of over a long period of time. But the main thing for me at that period of time would have been the intensity of the stress with my schedule and everything like that. Whereas with paid, it was probably the combination of the stress and then going through comp and losing all the weight and everything like that. Yeah. And typically they say for, as part of that diagnostic tool for HA, it is chronically under-eating, over-exercising or high levels of stress Mm. or a combination of both. Exactly. And that's it. And the high levels of stress, that can even just be like, it could be a traumatic event. Like it could be, even for some people I've seen it, they've just gone through a breakup and it's been that severely stressful that their body's like, no, let's shut everything down. And, Mm -hmm. you know, even people that have, you know, semi-regular menstrual cycles, you can see the impact of stress. If one month that you've had heaps of stress, that instantly kind of tells the brain, let's kind of delay ovulation and they might get their period a week or so late. But one of the things in terms of the pathophysiology of what actually happens is there's a reduction in a hormone called GnRH from the brain that reduces the secretion of a hormone called luteinizing hormone, which is a hormone that helps to stimulate a follicle to be released from the ovaries. And basically by switching off LH, switching off FSH, you then get reduced ovulation function. And that has a really strong association with the HPA axis being like the stress response being high, which is like we said, under eating, over exercising and other stresses will constantly push that HPA axis to increase your cortisol output, which then tells the brain, don't secrete any luteinizing hormone. And then you miss your period. Uh-huh. Now, in <laughs> terms of how that's a little bit different to PCOS, it's really dependent on the bloods can really show us an understanding as to what's going on there. So generally with HA, like I said, you get the low LH, you get the low FSH, you also get low estrogen output, which is the main factor, which we're going to go into later on in terms of the side effects of that. And then there's the missing period. In most people, it's missing completely. In polycystic ovarian syndrome, it's metabolic dysfunction that causes a dysregulation of your testosterone output because there's an insulin resistance component. And the way that you can actually see that in your bloods is you actually have more LH. So the high LH on day two or day three of your bloods, it's usually that the LH is higher than FSH. And because there's an imbalance there that delays your ovulation and then there's other hormones that come into it like you have elevated androgens like DHEA you can also have high prolactin the testosterone is generally supposed to be high but I rarely see it high in the bloods but you can very clearly see a HA case from a PCOS case through bloods do you see much of that with the clients that you're working one-on-one you can see in terms of the patterns with their cycle yeah absolutely Absolutely. And I think also you can mostly tell from a mental aspect. I can tell Mm. between clients, but also a lot of clients will then go down the route of going and doing ultrasounds and they'll go to a gyno and and they'll go through 
those factors as well, especially like I remember doing that myself because it had been such a long time and I had been working on so many different factors and they were still coming back and telling me that it was PCOS, but it was absolutely clearly not. But I think that just from a factor of, you know, when you're working with a client, you understand their eating behaviors, their eating patterns. And then when you start to implement different dietary strategies, you then go, okay, yeah, no, this is definitely not PCOS. Mm -hmm. And I know that it's not PCOS because this is the way that you're responding or, you know, that your body uh, is sort of starting to resist a certain food or macronutrient. And then you're like, okay, because of that reason, I think that it's this. Can we go back and test your bloods? And then I'll obviously work with you and the rest of the Urenda team to be like, okay, yeah, this is essentially how we need to tackle this one moving forward. Absolutely. Now, the I guess the thing is as well is, like you said, a lot of people are getting misdiagnosed. So they have hypothalamic amenorrhea and they're being told they have polycystic ovarian syndrome. And that's purely because the diagnostic for polycystic ovarian syndrome is that you've got more now they've changed the criteria. It used to be more than 12 follicles on the ovaries. Now it's more than 19, I think. So if they do an ultrasound and they see more than 19 follicles, they say, okay, diagnostic for polycystic ovarian syndrome. If they see that you've got irregular menstrual cycles, so you haven't had a period for a while, that's enough. Um, and sometimes they actually don't even do bloods before they tell people they've got polycystic ovarian syndrome. They'll just do an ultrasound. Now, the reason that you're being told this is because both of them, yes, will look absolutely the same in the ovaries. It's an ovulation, so you're not ovulating or you're ovulating infrequently. So you're getting an excess accumulation of follicles that haven't completely matured or developed enough to be able to be released. So then you're being told, hey, yeah, you've got polycystic ovarian syndrome. You should cut your carbs and you should start doing more cardio. <laughs> and then you're like, actually, that's everything I've been doing for the last five years. And <laughs> like, why is my period not back yet? Exactly. And I think that's the reason of like what I'm saying when you just start implementing the dieting strategies, Mm. like you start actually giving them some carbohydrates and the body is starting to thrive, but you're like, this is definitely not PCOS. This is definitely HA. Exactly. Now, there is a little bit of a HA PCOS scale I've actually seen in a few clients, which is really important to touch on. So, and I'm sure like Paige does a lot of work with clients one-on-one to be able to help them structure their meal plans and get them feeling good with their diet and relationship with food to be able to bring recovery back, which we're going to get into. But there is a little bit of a scale that I've seen in some clients before. Insulin resistance is one of the main metabolic drivers that can cause polycystic ovarian syndrome. Now, in some people with HA, like you can actually have the same or similar insulin resistant kind of response because of restriction to food that can happen. But it can also sometimes happen in the period of time where you're bringing back your food, like where you're eating more. And that's because you can kind of tackle it from a way where you're either incorporating more whole foods to bring your period back or you're eating a shitload of sugar in the process of trying to get your carbs in. Now, we're not like demonizing sugar or anything like that at all, because especially with our HA clients, there's resistance to eating particular foods. There's a lot of negative connotation around this is a bad food or this is a good food. So we're not trying to label food. And also it's just hard to eat the volume sometimes of food that you need to. And you can overdo it on fiber if you're trying to eat necessarily the amount of food that you need to when you're trying to recover. Yes, exactly. And also, especially because most of your carbs will then have a fiber source. So you kind of naturally then increase my fiber in the process. But 
the thing is, and like what Paige does as well, is like, you know, if she's writing the meal plan, she'll make sure she's factoring foods that you like. And I know that I've done that with clients too, that are trying to get their period back. I'm like, you're binging on the weekend sugar. How about we just give you a little bit of ice cream every single day and then see like that, you know, that re- reduces the likelihood that you're going to binge because you're having a little bit here and there. But in saying that, it's not something that they're then having three to four times a day in an effort to try to get mm. their period back. It's something that they're having in small in small amounts. So I think that's something that's important to consider because I've seen clients that have come with hypothalamic amenorrhea or that was their idea as to what they've had they haven't actually got their period back. And this was prior to seeing me. They haven't actually got their period back. So they've spent the last, you know, six months or more eating a lot of carbohydrates, eating a lot of sugar. And then in their bloods, it's actually now a picos bloods. And then you can kind of see that the approach needs to be a little bit different. It's not that they need to lose weight or anything like that. It's just that they need to change the sources of carbohydrates that they're coming from as well. But for those that are listening, I don't want you to feel like you need to go and self-prescribe and like think about like all these little factors. Like Definitely this not. is like the reason that you get individualized support when it comes to this kind of stuff because like Paige is my coach. Like I don't even like to decide what I'm having. I'm just like, Paige, just tell me what I'm doing yeah. <laughs> because it's so easy to then try to get into your own particular bias as well. So that's something to consider when it comes to the diet approach of what you're doing with your HA. But in summary, with the whole HA PCOS thing, if you've been told you have polycystic ovarian syndrome, but in your timeline and in your history, you're seeing that things are ticking more of the boxes of HA, like there was excessive exercise, there was a lot of calorie cutting, and there was a lot of stress, and then your period went missing, there was a change in body composition, and then you're being told you've got polycystic ovarian syndrome. Without your bloods being done, I would highly suggest you go and work with a practitioner that actually is looking into doing your blood test so you can have the right understanding as to what's going on. The reason being as well, because that's then going to change even like your nutritional or herbal prescriptions when it comes to your supplements, because herbs work in a specific way by stimulating the pituitary to function in a particular way. And there's things that are helpful and there's things that are harmful in terms of herbal interventions dependent on what your individual hormonal profile looks like. So that's my little spiel on HA and (laughs) PCOS. But let's get into the diet stuff. So tell me, Paige, what is the role of the diet? Like when you're working with your clients that have HA, what is the importance of energy intake and balance? Well, I guess when you think about everything that we were saying before in terms of the three factors that create HA, all those factors need to be considered. So one of them obviously being diet. It is obviously completely, as everything is, individualized per client. And it's very important from a nutritional perspective to understand the fears and the struggles in which the client is already having. So for some clients, they're struggling because they're binging or they're overeating on the weekend and then they're restricting during the week. So it's okay. How can we make sure that your energy intake is consistent across the week and that it is enough for what your body needs? So we're looking at it from a perspective of what does your body need at rest? Then what does your body need, including the energy output that you're doing? So if you're doing exercise, if you're doing all those factors, what does your body then need to be able to manage that stress response? And then it's okay what are you currently eating and how can we get you to that position 
slowly increasing. And I'm saying slowly increasing because I'm wanting to make sure that people are feeling comfortable. But if you're starting off at a point where you're eating like say 1200 calories and your body needs 22 to 2300 calories, I'm going to bump you up to about 1600 and then I'm going to continue to increase and add calories until we get up to that point. I'm going to keep you there and see how you're feeling because I know that it is a very like fearful process. And then we're going to continue to increase because there is a point in which you can actually start to have your metabolism supporting itself in the sense of you can reverse that to a certain point. You think that that's maintenance, but your maintenance may actually be a lot higher than what you think it is or what a calculation would provide you. And then we continue to add on from that. And then we're just continuing to check in on how are you feeling? How's your body responding? How's your energy levels? How's your libido? Like all of those factors are obviously taking a huge consideration. A lot of people will talk about that 2,500 calories as being, you know, the benchmark that all women need to get to in terms of getting their period back. But I don't necessarily think that's the case. And I think that if we blanket it by going, you have to eat 2,500 calories and just starting off with that straight away, it can create a lot of stress and fear. So that's why I like to go through the approach more so of increasing food. But then there's also a lot of people where we try and actually like eradicate calories completely Mm. where I'm just going, how can we structure your day of eating? What does your day of eating currently look like? And then it's okay. So instead of having that pumpkin, how about we swap the pumpkin for sweet potato? And how about we swap the low carb wrap that you're having? Let's have a proper wrap and just slowly making those changes and then going, okay, instead of having a sweetener here, how about we just like add in, you know, sorry, a sugar-free sweetener. How about we add in some honey or something like that? you're not having dessert. Do you like dessert? How about let's add in some ice cream for dinner? If that's something that you're binging on on the weekend, let's just try and include it day to day so that then you're also starting to like repair that relationship with food. So it's obviously completely individualized, but it's that important factor of increasing the amount of food that you're currently consuming to a point where your body is starting to reduce that stress response Mm -hmm. around food. You're feeling full, not overly full, but also remembering there might come a point where you actually, if you're still not getting your period back, you may need to eat more than what you're comfortable eating. Mm -hmm. And it's about working on that relationship with food, working on your mental state when it comes to eating more and flipping it to how is this going to support you moving forward Mm -hmm. in terms of what your goals are and why you want to get your menstrual cycle back. I think the mindset is such an important point that you need to really continuously focus on in the whole journey. Even yesterday, for example, I was speaking with a client of mine who frequently has menstrual cycle lengths of about, I think they're usually about like anywhere between like 60 or 45, 60, 90 days. I can kind of vary on and off. I know for her, she's got so much fear around eating carbohydrates because for her, she's had acne And, you know, the common thing in the acne world is eat less carbs and that's going to help your metabolic function to improve your skin, which, yeah, I can understand because obviously I specialize in that area. So I can understand the pathophys of that. But I can also see the negative side effects that people can have when they're not eating enough carbs as well. And for her, something that I actually mentioned was I want you to think about it in the perspective of I wonder what my body would feel like if I were to do this today. 
like kind of thinking about it in like an experimental kind of way. So for her, it was like, hey, I want you to not have just half a piece of fruit because she was having half a piece of fruit before she was training. I'm like, I want you to challenge yourself to have the whole piece of fruit and be like, well, I wonder what benefits I'll feel in my workout when I eat a whole piece of fruit. Like I wonder how my body's going to recover if I eat this whole piece of fruit. And then challenge her to be like, well, now that you're just having, you know, eggs and some fats with your breakfast and she was having no carbs with her brekkie and she wouldn't have carbs till about lunchtime. I was like, now I want you to add in like a rack every second day and be like, okay, well, what does my body feel like on the days that I'm having a wrap compared to the days that I'm not having a wrap? And mm. think about it more in an experimental kind of way because for her, her focus was on, I want to feel really good with my training. And it's like, well, let's kind of right now, your mindset is focused on that. Let's kind of latch on to that, use it to our best mm. advantage and be like, well, then how is our food going to support that? So I think that perspective of what you said, like the mindset and thinking, well, how is my body going to feel if I were to do this? And remembering that even just one little thing, like for example, with my client, with adding in a wrap, it's like, well, actually, that's like the worst case scenario that you're thinking that is going to happen is probably not going to happen. Um, yeah. If she's not going to gain five kilos overnight, if she were to add yeah. like one bat into her thing. So, yeah, I think that's a really important point that you brought up. And I think too, like when you think about like mindset overall and you think about the stress in which we're putting on our body from the stress of life, the times in which we can be reflective, the times in which we can focus on our mindset, whether it be journaling, whether it be meditating, like whatever it might be for you in terms of just being mindful, mm -hmm. that's also a way of reducing stress mm -hmm. as well because, you know, you've got the stress that you're having from not eating enough, stress from stress. And by focusing on that mindfulness around food, you're then able to focus on your overall stress as well because you're being mindful of it. Yeah. Absolutely. So moving on to the whole body fat percentage as well, we've kind of touched on this a little bit here and there where we've clarified that it doesn't necessarily matter what body fat, like you can experience HA even if you're a normal weight as well. And that irrespective of weight, if you're just in a deficit for too long of a period of time, that can be enough trigger for the body. So from your understanding, is there something that you've seen in terms of patterns that it's X amount of weight that you find helps to get people's periods back. So like, what are the trends that you see? In terms of trends and also just like listening to podcasts and reading up a lot on it and being part of a lot of the HA recovery groups, typically what I've seen is that the weight in which you were maintaining previously before, say you were on the pill, before you started dieting, that typically, and that was definitely also in my case, is the weight then that you need to sort of get to in order to recover. Mm -hmm. From one of the podcasts that I was listening to recently was that it's sort of 22 to 23% body fat and above is mm -hmm. typically, but obviously there are people that are over that body fat percentage and also don't have their period. So it's important, I guess, to recognize that HA doesn't have a body fat percentage or a size that it dictates. But typically that's sort of what I see. I think it's also really important to, to note, and I have a bone to pick with BMI, which I know that in Australia they've currently yeah. removed, which is great from the school curriculum. But for example, for myself, my BMI range is between 59 and 83 kilos. So if 
I was to go to the doctor and I was to say, I don't have a period and they were to look at my BMI, they would say that I'm in the healthy range and that it shouldn't be the case. Um, But I think that it's really, really important for people to like recognize, are they maintaining the weight that they're currently on by doing excessive exercise, by dieting? And if they were to take away all of those rules, do they think that they would still be able to maintain that weight? And if the answer is no, then you're probably not at a good body fat percentage that your body would like to be at in order to recover your period. I'm not saying that you can't Mm. maintain like your fat loss if your like period is healthy and things. But I'm saying when you have dysregulated hormones, that likely if you're not able to maintain the weight that you're currently at without everything that you're currently doing, you're probably going to need to increase weight or increase your body fat in order to see that change. And how long are you typically seeing in most of the clients that you've worked with? to get their period back. Oh gosh. That's a I know, million. I'm throwing you on the spot. That's like the million dollar question. <laughs> I know, um, because I know it's what everyone's going to be thinking. It's like, how long does it take? It really depends on how much people are willing to commit to it, if I'm being completely yeah, honest. Absolutely. If somebody is will is willing and that is their main focus that they're wanting to commit to, I've seen people get their period back within four to six months. But then, yeah. as I said, including myself, two years. Two years, grueling two years. But then there's some people that also I am working with them. They're like, I want to get off the pill. I'm concerned. I've been, you know, they've been dieting for a while. They're concerned that they're going to not get it back. They come off the pill. And whilst they're coming off the pill, we're already focusing on that reverse diet. They get their period back within, you know, one to two cycles. Mm -hmm. So it really varies. And it just depends on your willingness to commit and your ability to focus on, yeah, just that mental aspect. And a lot of my clients as well will just like check in with me when they're having a bad body image day. They'll check in with me on that day. Like I have some clients that will check in with me daily <laughs> because yeah. they're just like, I just need to just air this out. And sometimes I'm like, you've aired it out now. How do you feel? Yeah. Feel so much better. Okay. Can move forward with my day. And yeah. I think that that's like the benefit of when you're going through something that's consuming your headspace so much. You just need someone to check in with that understands. Exactly. Like for anybody else that even just goes through therapy, therapy and they're just doing therapy, like just having that external body that you can speak to. That's the mm. benefit of like having therapy or having somebody else external that doesn't like know you that like, well, knows you, but you know, just an external body that you can just speak to about it helps so much yeah so I like what you said in terms of like it really depends on your ability to be able to go all in because I I know that I've seen that in some of my clients most recently one of my clients that I've worked with on HA the one that I mentioned before that had like was binging on the weekends and I told her to eat sweets every day so she could you know get a better relationship with food with her she literally went all in she was like increasing her food she felt the discomfort she would check in with me if she was feeling discomfort she identified if her bowels were being sluggish and we worked through around that because yes naturally your bowels would probably become a bit sluggish in the process of you increasing more food because it's a lot more volume and your digestion's not really used to it but for her she went all in in the sense that she literally stopped exercising Now, I know for some people that can be a massive thing, like stopping the exercise whilst increasing your food is a massive trigger. 
And for her, she was like, actually, I'm just going to stop completely because I'm committed. And she then started to then focus on different forms of training and started doing more yoga. And for her, like that, that's nowhere near the level of intensity as to what she was doing before. And we wouldn't typically classify that as a lot of exercise for her because it was like just flow stretching. She wasn't doing any like bicker and hot where she was sweating. Like it was actually really slow and gentle flows, which was nice. Um, I think that was only actually after maybe a couple months where she completely stopped and she's like, right, I'm feeling better that I'm just going to start incorporating more mindfulness moving, just more for my mental health as well. And she was loving it. And I think we got her period back again within that like four to six month range. And she hadn't had a period for about two or so years at that point. And just the feeling that she got, like, I couldn't tell you how many times she told me that it improved her relationship with her partner like they were happier together because they were able to do more things together in terms of just eating meals together and yeah. being happy and she wasn't irritable and like just seeing like I don't know I'm sure people that are listening that have had HA or PCOS like and sorry if there's any males listening that kind of feel like they you know this kind of topic but I know that if I haven't had my period for a while and I'd say blood I'm like yes finally like, yeah. you know. <laughs> but even again just like going back to like the libido right like yeah. the surge yeah. of hormones and you're just like oh my god I haven't felt like this in so long and like that is such a huge thing as part yeah. of HA that goes missing and you wonder mm-hmm. what's going on and you don't know why and then all of a sudden once you commit and you're like eating all this food and you're like your libido comes back and you're like oh my god this would have been missing (laughs) exactly that's it and I think sometimes it really requires you to let go of that control of this idea that you know the perfect body or this perfect regime or whatever that might be is then gone because there's going to be a different version of you that you're working to create Um, And that version of you that has a healthy menstrual cycle, has a healthy libido, has more energy, still able to do the training and stuff that they enjoy and eat the food that they love is like such better quality of life. Which is something we can obviously touch on later, like what life's like sort of post HA. Post, Um, yeah, absolutely, definitely. Uh, Now there's so many other different things that I want to touch on, but I reckon we should hold it for a part two definitely i think so yeah there's a lot yeah. more to discuss there's a lot more we've got things that we want to talk about in terms of like actually the major dangers of long-term ha if you haven't had estrogen circulating around for a long period of time what that can do the impact of exercise so what you do there the role of herbal medicine and other factors that you need to look at from a holistic perspective when it comes to hypothalamic amenorrhea but in summary the main things we want you to take away from this is not every ha journey looks exactly the same which means that the factors that might have caused you to be in hypothalamic amenorrhea can be very different to the person next to you everyone will have their own base level of where their body likes to keep them safe and that will vary dependent on their own individual factors in their timeline which then means that your you know the amount of food you might need compared to the person next to you can be very different the amount of stress that you might experience in one month compared to the person next to you can be very different because your stress resilience and this and the sensitivity there so there is no one exact ha picture that looks exactly the same which means there's no one ha treatment plan 
that looks exactly the same. If you're going from eating 1,200 calories a day to then trying to eat 2,000 calories a day in an instance, yeah, you're going to feel shit. Like you're going to feel shit in your body. You're probably going to feel shit mentally. And it's probably not the best way to do it. You've got to slowly work towards focusing on the things that you need to get in the um, in the long run rather than doing it all at once. But in summary, another thing with the whole PCOS picture is if you've been told you have polycystic ovarian syndrome just by ultrasound and no one's done the blood tests and you've, your period's gone missing for more than like a couple months, then I'd definitely say get your blood done, make sure they're done. Well, I couldn't even say that they're done on the correct day of the cycle because you don't have a cycle. Just make sure you're getting your FSH and your LH done and your androgens tested and your estrogen. The way that Paige and I work together is I do a lot of the blood test analysis and the nutritional and herbal prescriptions, whereby then um, Paige does a lot more of that one-on-one nutrition coaching to help you with that, like, you know, the daily check-ins, the weekly check-ins to help with keeping yourself accountable, but also making sure that you've got that extra support and that network there for someone that can understand who's been through the journey and can work through so many different variables as well. So we'll wrap it up there with our part one, but our part two, we're going to record to through the rest of the things that you need to look out for but if you have any questions at all please feel free to send either myself or page a dm if you've got any questions regarding things that you want us to cover we are also more than happy to cover that in our part two perfect yeah we can put up a question box or something and get some questions through and we can answer them at the end amazing sounds good all right thank you for tuning in and we will pop details on the show notes with where to learn more information about working with page and myself 